So good morning and happy Monday, everyone. So uh, my name is D. Casper. I work with ARTV, which I even have a slide for that, which is the Adventist Review's new on-demand media platform. And as a free welcoming gift, here's information on how you can get more information. And so ARTV is kind of our equivalent of Netflix of sorts. It's on-demand programming that's Adventist, all of it's Adventist, so it's not like Pure Flix where you have to, uh, you know, spit out the seeds and wish that they didn't say that Grandma's in heaven when she dies or whatever. Um, it's all Adventist programming. It's short, it's shareable. How many people in this room have an iPhone? Okay. How many people in this room have an Android? Smartphone. How many people in this room have an Apple TV? Okay, how about a Roku device? So if you have any of those devices, how about just a web browser in general, in some form or fashion? Just an internet connection. Yes, if you have a web browser, then you can access ARTV through our website, ARTVnow.com. There is a section where you have to sign up, but it's free. It costs you nothing. It's just Vimeo makes us have some form of login credentials. You just sign up, you give your email, whatever, but you get all the, the stuff for free. It's all free Adventist programming. Um, and the cool thing is, if you're watching a video, you start in your car, uh, and then you go inside, you can actually resume what you were watching in your car on your Apple TV or your other devices. You can actually catch up from wherever you were reading or watching. It'll pick up from where you left off on the next device that you pick up on. It's actually kind of cool. So anyway, we're really excited for this. We believe that Digital media is the new publishing work, so we're sticking to our roots of being a publishing organization, but we're moving into digital media. We also have podcasts. Uh, it's called AR Audio, and if you just type Adventist Review into your podcasting uh, site of choice, whatever your platform is, you can also access that. Uh, we just released a documentary that I'm actually going to be screening here on probably Thursday. Um, on the Mark of the Beast with Mark Finley. How many people have watched or listened to that, the documentary we just did on Mark of the Beast? Shame on all of you, but that's okay. So, um, how many people actually receive the Adventist Review in the mail? How many people get the Adventist Review? Or you look it up online, you, you keep on... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I am not a regular subscriber. Okay. Get it as a conference provides. Yeah, yeah. So when you get the Adventist Review from this month all the way through the end of the year, they have a series called Digging Deeper, and we're basically covering different topics of Adventism, our core beliefs, but digging deeper in those. This month, the topic is the Mark of the Beast. So Mark Finley, I think, wrote an article for it. We have a podcast with Mark Finley talking on it, and we also just made a documentary where Mark Finley's meeting with five millennials, an atheist, a Muslim, a Catholic, an evangelical, and a pastor's kid, and an atheist. Evangelical pastor's kid and an atheist talking about the Mark of the Beast. It's a really cool discussion. Uh, the podcast gives more information. There's also an article he wrote on it. So it's really, really cool. Next week's to or next month's topic is actually going to be on the Godhead. So, uh, yeah. May I ask that, for my understanding, yeah. that AI is standing also indicating that you are affiliated with the Review and Error Publishing. We are the Adventist Review. Yeah. You are the Yeah. Adventist. Yeah. So it's Adventist Review, and it, we're not a television station, but it just kind of gives the idea. But yeah, this is all run by the Adventist Review. So ARTV is the Adventist Review's new on-demand media publishing wing. 
So, anywho, if you want to find more information, you can go to our website uh, and access. Pro there's nature programming, there's health programming. All of it's family friendly. All of it's free. We're excited. If you're watching our program and you really like it, there's a share button on whatever device you're on to share with your friends. Again, it's free for them. So when it tells them to log in or make a login, there is no charge. That's not. They don't have a charge, so it's free. Um. A full launch in the last year, but they started before that, but yeah. Okay, so we, that's ARTV. Uh, there's one more thing that there's a program that I'm actually a part of that isn't affiliated with ARTV at all, but I'm talking about it anyway. Um, if you have the Facebook, you can follow us at RQRA3ABN. It's a new program developed for young people dealing with hard heart issues. Um, unhealthy views of God, unhealthy views of ourselves, it airs two weeks from yesterday uh, on 3ABN, but it's also being released on Facebook and YouTube. And they're 15-minute programs. It's a Q&A format dealing with real issues that young people are contending with that folks don't want to talk about, giving Christ-centered answers. It's called Raw Questions, Relevant Answers. And if you'd like to tell people to find out more where our promo is and all that stuff, just RQRA 3ABN. You can find it there. I think they've run articles in their magazine about it, and they've had some little blurbs on it on their TV station too. But anyway, it's another program that's um, going to be released in two weeks. And if people have questions they'd like to submit, as this is for young people, so 15 to 30, um, if they'd like to submit questions, we actually have a form on that page where they can go and submit any questions, and it's all anonymous. No one knows who they are. We just ask for an age, a state, and a gender. That's it. So they can ask questions anonymously and get help. So all that being said, today's topic is Snapchat selfies and salvation, dealing with the topic of digital media and specifically social media for our first one. And uh, so what I'd like to do is begin with the word of prayer, and then we will start this morning's presentation. Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege to pray, to see our need. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon this place, that you would minister to us, that we would better understand the mission field that exists before us with digital media, and also the pitfalls and how to succeed in navigating it. So I just pray that you would give great wisdom in this presentation to all of us, and that you would bless us indeed. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I've given all those introductions. What I'd like to do is go to the book of Acts. Did you know that Paul got the gospel to go viral 2,000 years ago? Acts chapter 19, for those who may not be acquainted with the term, um, something going viral is basically something online getting immense popularity, and everyone knows about it, everyone has seen it. So Paul gets the gospel to go viral in Acts chapter 19. How many people have heard of a place called Ephesus? So Paul writes the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus for a span. Um, the apostle John died uh, as the pastor of Ephesus in that area. But in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and we will go to verse 4. Uh, well, they hear that people have been baptized but they don't understand the full depths of what Jesus has done, and they can't fully make sense of it. And so he asks a question in verse 3. He says, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, Christ Jesus. Verse 5. 
When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and the men were about twelve in all. And then Paul from here goes into the synagogue, and he speaks boldly in the synagogue for how long? Nice and loud. How long does he preach there? Three months. months, Reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, Paul departed from them and withdrew the disciples, and reasoning how frequently? Daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for how long? For two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this is talking about the Roman province of Asia, but just think about this. Paul's preaching in the synagogue. They don't want to listen to him. They're giving him a hard time for believing in Jesus. So he moves to the school of Tyrannus, and he preaches there every day for two years. Now, if he preaches there every day for two years, that implies he's not going all throughout Asia. But yet somehow, all of Asia hears the gospel, both Jews and Greeks. Well, how does that happen? People came to the school of Tyrannus. They heard the gospel. They went home and shared with somebody else. And then those people shared with somebody else. More people came to the school of Tyrannus. They heard about it. They shared, and they shared. In social media context, if you will, someone saw what Paul was posting and hit liked and share, right? This, this process kind of blew up for them, and it grew tremendously. And so he stays in the same place, but yet somehow the whole Roman province of Asia Here's the gospel, both Jews and Greeks. Now, what is the school of Tyrannus? Uh, this is just an artist's depiction. I don't think they had ceiling fans in Paul's day uh, or chalkboards, but it's just an artist's depiction of it. But the school of Tyrannus was basically a facility in Ephesus whenever it was too hot to work during the day. Uh, the first people who used it in the early part of the day were the intelligentsia, the higher up in society. They would have some form of training, lecturing that they would come to. But after that, the school was just vacant. And what people would do, because it was too hot to work in the fields, they would come to the school of Tyrannus to hear new ideas and to kill time in between work and school. Okay? That's what the school of Tyrannus basically was. Now, social media, I fully believe, is the new school of Tyrannus. This is a place where people are hanging out to see and hear new ideas and to kill time after work and after school. And let's just be honest, we're doing this during work and during school too, right? Some staggering statistics. The world population right now, according to Mr. Google, is 7.6 billion people. 3.8 billion are on the internet. Half of the world's population right now has access to the internet and is actively using the internet. 2.8 billion are active on social media. 1 billion people are active on Facebook. That's a, like, if that were a country, it would be one of, if not the largest country in the world, right? 100 million people use Instagram every month. 91% of retail brands use 2% or more social media accounts. And it's not because they make huge business on it, but they get name recognition more than anything. Internet users have an average of 5.54 social media channels. Okay, that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, I don't know if anyone actually uses Google+, but if they do, that counts. YouTube. 75% of Facebook users and 50% of Instagram users visit those sites daily. Social media use increased by 4.82 million since January of 2016. 
One million new active mobile social users are added how frequently? Every day. That's 12 a second social media users are added. Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp, listen to this, handle 60 billion messages a day. So through WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, those two apps, 60 billion messages a day are sent just through those two mediums. On any given day, Snapchat reaches 41% of 18 to 34-year-olds in the U.S. That's the lost generation of Adventism, the people we would die to meet. And on any given day, Snapchat reaches 41% of those people. 50% of 18 to 24-year-olds go on Facebook when they wake up. How many of them are picking up one of these when they wake up, right? They may come across spiritual things if you're posting about them, though. The average daily time used on social media in 2016 was 118 minutes. I don't mean to get crazy biblical on you, but that's almost 10% of their day. That's almost a tithe of their day, right? So, internet use based upon regions. East Asia is killing it. 923 million people, internet users. South Asia, 585. So, just these two together is already like 1.5 billion basically, um, people on the internet. Africa, 362 million. West Europe, 353 million. Southeast Asia, 339 million, which is nearly 2 billion when you add all together. Uh, North America, 320 million and so forth. These are internet users in millions. Now, profiles for social media networks. Facebook, 1.9 billion. YouTube, 1 billion. Instagram, 600 million. Twitter, 317 million. Snapchat, 300 million. I don't know if you're catching on to this, but there are a whole lot of people on social media. There's a whole lot of people on the internet. The Apostle Paul's mouth would be watering if he realized that he could get access to this many people this easily. The whole reason Paul went to the school of Tyrannus is because that's where the people were. He went where the people were and where people were open to new ideas and he shared with them where he could find them. Okay? So this is kind of our blueprint. Now, some of you may have the question that this bear asked here. Yeah, but aren't there bad things that happen on social media? Aren't there bad things that are there? Yes, there are. Uh, there's terrorist propaganda. ISIS gained a whole lot of followers, not just in a Twitter sense, through social media. There's violence. There's cyberbullying, and this is no joke. We're going to close with that thought. Pornography. This is the safest picture I could use without getting kicked out of camp meeting because I just started. Uh, Facebook Live. This is something that happened a little over a year ago where a group of young people... Uh, in, in Chicago, kidnapped someone who was mentally disabled and tortured them live on Facebook Live and humiliated them, made a fool of them. And I don't know if they seem to understand the fact that when you're broadcasting something on Facebook Live, it's broadcasting from your profile. People will know who you are. They can kind of find out how to arrest you. So they got arrested for obvious reasons. Um, and so anyway... There are things that take place on Facebook Live that are nefarious and bad, and there are also things that are uplifting and a blessing. Uh, spiritualism, kooky stuff, not just Beyonce music videos, all kinds of things. Um, so what I'd like to do now is kind of cover the next topic of addiction and how social media shapes the brain, and then we'll come back to something. But here's the point to begin with. Are there bad things on social media? Yes. But if we were to adopt the position that we should stay away from all things that are bad, Jay and Andrews never would have advanced the Advent message into Europe 
Our pioneers never would have advanced the message in the hostile areas, and we would not be a global movement. So to just be afraid of people that don't look like us or don't do things like us is not going to advance the gospel cause. The question then is, is this where God is calling me? Because God calls people to difficult areas, but that does not mean that God has called you to that difficult area, particularly if you have no self-control, right? So there's a fine balance, and we'll cover that more later. But I want to talk about addiction and how social media shapes the brain. This is a video, uh, a short video that AT&T developed for social media dealing with the topic of distracted driving. Brain, you're just jonesing for a dopamine fix. Every time my phone dings, you get a big old hit. It's an addiction. How many people have been there? You hear your phone ding, and you just feel like, I gotta do something, I have to do something right now, but you know you shouldn't. Um, that's they're actually talking about the fact you get dopamine hits for this. Uh, this is a video from a, a group called ASAP Science. Uh, they have YouTube videos they make dealing with kind of the scientific side of stuff. They have a video called Five Ways That Social Media Is Changing Your Brain Right Now. With social media sites being used by one-third of the entire world, they've clearly had a major influence on society. But what about our bodies? Here are five crazy ways that social media and the internet are affecting your brain right now. Can't log off? Surprisingly, 5-10% to of internet users are actually unable to control how much time they spend online. Though it's a psychological addiction as opposed to a substance addiction, brain scans of these people actually show a similar impairment of regions that those with drug dependence have. Specifically, there's a clear degradation of white matter in the regions that control emotional processing, attention, and decision making. Because social media provides immediate rewards with very little effort required, your brain begins to rewire itself, making you desire these stimulations. And you begin to crave more of this neurological excitement after each interaction. Sounds a little like a drug, right? We also see a shift when looking at multitasking. You might think that those who use social media or constantly switch between work and websites are better at multitasking, but studies have found that when comparing heavy media users to others, they perform much worse during task switching tests. Increased multitasking online reduces your brain's ability to filter out interferences and can even make it harder for your brain to commit information to memory. Like when your phone buzzes in the middle of productive work. Or wait, did it even buzz? Phantom Vibration Syndrome is a relatively new psychological phenomenon where you think you felt your phone go off, but it didn't. In one study, 89% of test subjects said they experienced this at least once every two weeks. It would seem that our brains now perceive an itch as an actual vibration from our phone. As crazy as it seems, technology has begun to rewire our nervous system, and our brains are being triggered in a way they never have before in history. Social media also triggers a release of dopamine, the feel-good chemical. Using MRI scans, scientists found that the reward centers in people's brains are much more active when they're talking about their own views as opposed to listening to others. Not so surprising, we all love talking about ourselves, right? But it turns out that while 30-40% to 40 of face-to-face -face conversations involve communicating our own experiences, around 80% of social media communication is self-involved. The same part of your brain related to orgasms, motivation, and love are stimulated by your social media use, and even more so when you know you have an audience. Our body is physiologically rewarding us for talking about ourselves online. But it's... That's scary, isn't it? Here's the first thing. Multitasking is a lie. There's no such thing as multitasking and being productive. You're not productive. Um, and they're showing studies to see this. But here's the most incriminating and scary quote that's used in this video. Our bodies are physiologically rewarding ourselves 
for talking about ourselves online, right? So the very areas of our brain that had to do with intimacy and relationships are activated when we get notifications online. And this is one of the reasons why depression and loneliness is commonly experienced alongside heavy social media usage. It doesn't deliver like real relationships do. And so in turn, there's this emptiness, this unfilled um, sensation that we have. That's because it can't do for us what real relationships can there's a guy on Facebook uh, who has millions of views for his videos where he uses satire to address real issues. And so he has a video where he talks about how to be addic- more addicted to your phone. But the way he does it is um, in using satire, he gets some pretty strong points across. Studies show that people check their phones 150 times per day. This is horrible, and I think we can do better. I envision a world where people have enough anxious energy that they're driven to check their phones at least 600 times per day. My mission in this life is to make sure that every man, woman, and child has their life enriched by always having a device in their hand. Always being on my phone gives me the thrill of being manically busy while I'm actually wasting my time. You need to be hypervigilant about what's going on in your feed. If there's something happening that you don't know about, then other people know something useless that you don't know. And that'll make you a less significant person. If I'm not frantically consuming content on my phone, then I'm missing out. And I don't know what that something is that I'm missing out on, but I refuse to miss out on it. You need to have a well-educated understanding of how bad things will get if you're not on your phone. One time I went an hour without looking at my phone. What happened? My family disowned me. I'll never see them again. My dog died, I went bankrupt, and my food supply was cut off. I get to feel a dopamine rush that gratifies me for 37 seconds each time I check my phone. And then I feel anxious again. And then I check my phone again. Notice that the thoughts and feelings that you don't want to experience are in here. So you'll want to position your phone here. And when you do, notice that your eyes are pointed at your phone. And that keeps your attention out here, which means you're not paying attention to what's going on in here, which is ideal. And I'm sorry to get graphic, but look what would happen if you don't have your phone in front of you. Your attention would start to notice you. And if that happens, it's nobody's fault but your own. Remember, when you're mindlessly scrolling, you're not looking for something you care about. Looking is what you care about. When a text comes in, understand that if you don't check it right away, you become irrelevant to the person who sent it. You simply won't matter to them anymore. At this point, your anxiety levels should be at least a 9 out of 10. This will inspire you to appropriately disrupt what you're doing and check your text, and avoid getting lost in a sea of irrelevance. Okay, go ahead. When you're encountering something wonderful, it can't bring you joy unless you hold your phone between you and it to transfer it to your social media. Once it's on your social media, you can see other people seeing you see something wonderful, and that'll bring you real joy. You know you're on the right track when other people take out their phone and then you reflexively take out yours, even though you have no idea what you want to look at, and it doesn't matter. Just start looking. How can people live without being on their devices constantly? According to history, if you look at times where people existed without mobile devices, you'll see that they're all dead now. 
which proves you can't live without being on your device constantly. Scientific studies show that if I'm not posting useless thoughts that involve no thoughtfulness throughout the day as a way of begging people to notice me, people will forget about me and I'll cease to exist. I don't want to be a statistic. For safety reasons, you'll always want to have a backup battery charger with you. Would astronauts go to outer space without backup oxygen? No, they would not, because they would die. So what would happen to you if your phone ran out of power? Something worse. You'd experience yourself. If I had kids, I'd give them a phone as soon as they could hold it. We do have kids. There's two of them. Really? I've never noticed them. There's a whole world inside your phone. Don't let it pass you by. So what would happen if your phone battery died? You would experience yourself. <laughs> and that's a lot of the, there's a whole lot of truth to this. One of the main reasons why people keep running to this in their spare down moments during the day is because we're reminded of our loneliness. We're reminded of pain that we have in our lives that we haven't dealt with. And we want to escape that. And the easiest way to escape that is to distract ourselves with the closest thing at hand. And this is ideal for that. So there's a reason also on top of this that you get notifications about what other people are doing that aren't even related to your posts. Twitter is the worst at this. I have, I don't know about you, but I have this horrible disease that when I see red circles with numbers in them on my phone, they must die. I have to get rid of them. Like I can't stand the fact, I don't know how some of you people do it where you have like 4,000 unread emails. You're crazy. I don't know how you do that, but I can't, I have to get rid of all those notifications. And I get notifications from Twitter all the time that have nothing to do with my profile. It's, Bob posted something about something. So, what's that got to do with me? The reason why you get those notifications is to pull you back in, right? You don't have to chase them, right? You can turn them off. You can delete the app. There's ways you can deal with that. Some important thoughts. One, all addictive behavior, how many addictive behaviors? All addictive behavior is us attempting to numb pain that we're feeling in our lives, period. With that being said, then ask yourself the question, what thoughts am I trying to avoid? What pain am I seeking to escape? And three, have I brought my brokenness to Jesus, or am I just looking to the attention of others to fill that void, that emptiness in my experience? Some other important thoughts. Number four, is the cause that I'm posting about my way of escaping my real brokenness. Am I posting about this cause or that cause? This politician or that politician? This theological hot topic or that theological hot topic? Am I posting about these things and arguing with people on these forums just because I'm escaping my real brokenness and don't want to deal with my stuff, right? I find my identity in arguing with other people who think differently than I do. Does running so-and-so down numb the pain and the insecurity that I feel in my life? Some thought-reflecting questions or some um, self-reflective questions to ask before we post, before we get involved. Some other helpful steps. You choose when you re reply and when you look, not the noise that comes from your pocket. Ask yourself a logical question. Why am I on here? Right? Maybe some of you can relate in different ways, but you get up, you go into another room, and when you get there, you have no idea why you're there. And you don't know what to do anymore, and so you just go back to where you came from and sit down and hope it comes back to you. If you find yourself running to social media, but you don't know why, ask yourself the question, why am I going? Before you even go to access it, where am I going? What am I looking to achieve? And it keeps you from wasting time endlessly, so you're not in a situation where you're going looking for a specific picture of you and so-and-so, 
to send to wish them a happy birthday, and two hours later, two hours worth of cat videos later or something else, you don't even remember why you went. And you never wish them happy birthday because you destroyed your brains looking at cat videos or something else, right? Treat it like the post office. You come in, you get your mail, you send out mail, and you leave, right? You don't live at the post office. You got business you need to do and you leave. If someone sets up shop in the lobby at the post office, that's creepy. That's weird. No one's supposed to live there, right? Same thing here. You ever heard the phrase, don't shop when you're hungry? Yeah, that applies here. When you're lonely, when you're bored, that's probably not the best time to go to social media because you're going to kill more time and avoid the real issues that you probably should be dealing with at that stage. Some other helpful steps. Am I looking for attention and affirmation? Am I lonely? Am I hurting? Is that's why I'm going? Two, take downtime before you go to bed, right? Before you, when you wake up and when you go to bed, guard the edges. Stay away from that stuff during those hours just to kind of let your, just think. Reflect upon your day, reflect upon your needs. I don't know, maybe you could talk to Jesus. That would be a good idea, right? Some things to reflect upon. Be honest with yourself, and if you need to take time away, do it. But uh, you'll see there'll be times um, where people will go say, you know, hey, I'm leaving social media. I need a break, y'all. I got to catch my breath. I just need to get away from this thing. It's taking too much of my time. I need a break. And so you take time away, and you realize, wait a minute. I'm far more productive when I spend time away than I was when I was spending so much time on this thing. Two, actually a little happier. And then whenever that time frame ends, whatever it is that you were thinking of, you just go knee deep in it all over again. You're using it way too much. If you don't deal with the real issues while you're gone, you're just going to go just as deep as you were before. Does that make sense? So take time to deal with those things. Uh, otherwise, you just jump back in. Now, selfie. It's a picture taken of a person by that person, but I've coined a phrase, and don't steal this from me. It's called selfie-ishness. When we come out of the womb, we're already selfish, right? But what social media is doing is making you even more me-centered than you were before. And we were pretty selfish, yeah? So we need to make sure that we're not allowing this thing to reprogram our brains and how we operate. Am I only posting about me? Am I only looking for things about me? Questions to be asking. Now, a lesson that we can learn from the life of Lot. If you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 19, we can go there. I'm going to summarize, but if it makes you feel like you're getting a Bible study by hearing someone summarize and there's a Bible open in front of you, feel free to turn to Genesis 19. So in Genesis chapter 19, there's a lesson I believe that we can learn from the life of a man named Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abram, uh, who will later become Abraham. But Abram says, look, all the land is before you. If you go right, I'll go left. Their herdsmen were quarreling one with another. I think this is Genesis chapter 13. They were quarreling one with another because there wasn't enough room for both of them. It's like those old westerns. This town ain't big enough for the both of us, right? And so Abraham tells Lot, if you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. All the land is before you. You choose. Now, who was rightfully promised the whole land? Abraham. But Abraham yields a choice of Lot on where he's going to go first. Lot could have said, no, 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 you're my elder. You're basically acting as my dad at this stage, serving as my dad. You choose. He doesn't. So he feathers his own nest. He chooses Vegas, right? Lot chooses a place. They got Whole Foods. They got an Apple store. They got a library. Right? They got a public transportation system. All of the things that I could ever want, they got that there. 
that's where we're going. And, but here's the problem. In Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13, we're given a description of what the population of Sodom looks like. And it says, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. A very simple question for you this morning. Does this sound like a place that they're going to be filming Sesame Street? Does this sound like a place that Mr. Rogers lives? Does it sound like a place that you want to raise your children? And yet Lot chose to put his family there. Okay? He chose to put his family in an environment that wasn't in his best interest. And here's one of the things that Lot was thinking. I can handle it. I'm a righteous guy. I have a devotional life. I pray for people other than myself in the morning. I even pray for people other than myself later in the day. I read my Bible. I have worship with my kids. And so because I do these spiritual things, it's okay if I subject my family to Sodom to nonsense, to Babylonian foolishness, and I give them exposure to things that aren't in their best interest, and he just assumes that by him being a righteous guy who's comfortable in the presence of foolishness, things are going to kind of balance out okay. The problem is, they don't. And Lot ends up in a situation that isn't very good. So, God sends angels from heaven to save this man, and you know why these angels are sent to save this man? Does anyone know why? Abraham is praying. Abraham is interceding for this man. Ella White phrases it this way, Once he had saved them by a sword, now he endeavored to save them by prayer. So when Lot is in a situation, in Genesis chapter 14, I believe, whenever the five kings are rebelling, they come in, they sack the place, and they take all the people who were in Sodom captive. Lot, when he first gets to Sodom, he lives out in the plain, But come Genesis 14, he's in the city when the city's sacked by the people who are coming after the five kings who've rebelled. And when they're taken captive, Lot at this stage has no idea that Abraham is coming to save his life. As far as Lot is concerned, he's a dead duck. He's done. And he realizes, and you you certainly know, whenever you're in those situations where you're taken captive and you're in trouble, you're going to be reflective about the decisions you've made in life. And I guarantee you Lot was thinking... I shouldn't have chosen this place. I shouldn't have lived here. What he doesn't know is that Abraham's coming to save his life. Abraham does save his life. But come Genesis chapter 19, where is Lot living with his second chance? In Sodom. And I don't know if you've ever been in the backwoods areas, but they have something called the warning shot. You know what I'm talking about? When you go in the backwoods areas and you hear the shot, someone firing a firearm, what they're telling you is, I'm reloading, get off my property. What Lot received in Genesis chapter 14 was basically a warning shot, right? A chance to kind of sober himself up and make a wise decision. But that conviction waned and he put himself back in that situation. They put their roots even deeper. And whenever God calls Lot to leave Sodom and answer to Abraham's prayer... And just think about this part. When Abraham is praying and bartering with God over this situation, what's the final number they get to that he says, if there's that many righteous people, I won't destroy this city? What's the final number? Ten. You have Lot. You have Lot's wife. You have virgin daughter number one. You have virgin daughter number two. 
you have married daughter number one and her husband. You have married daughter number two and her husband. You have at least eight direct family members of Abraham living in Sodom. At least eight. About as close as you can cut it, yeah? But here's the problem. Lot has no idea that he's living on borrowed time. He should, because he's on his second chance. But Lot is not living as if he values the second chance that he's been given. And Lot finds himself in Sodom with all of his, his whole livelihood, his whole world, all of his happiness is tied to a place that he never should have been. And yet this is what his whole life is surrounded by. And he's in a situation that whenever the angels tell him to get out of the city, he notice he does not say, you are absolutely right, let's leave right now. He drags his feet. He argues with them. He makes excuses. He basically says, you know, you're right. Tomorrow, I'm going to call U-Haul and schedule a truck for next week. We'll have a rummage sale. He has no idea that this city is going down in a matter of hours. He's wasting time. He's messing around. And when they tell him, call your family and get them out of here, this is what the text says. Genesis chapter 19, verse 14. So Lot went and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. And you better believe there's this sense of urgency in the heart of Lot at this stage that they've never seen before. And that's part of the problem. And so he knocks the door and says, you guys got to get out of here. This place is wicked. It's sinful. God's going to destroy it. You have to leave because this place is so bad. You know what the text says next? says, but to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. You ever wonder about that? Why do you think they responded this way to his urgent and desperate plea? Just imagine what's going through the mind of Lot's sons-in-law. When this man is freaking out at their front door in ways they've never seen before, their response is probably going to be something along these lines. You know, you didn't seem to be this worried a week ago. And if this place really is all that bad, why do you live here? You with me? And Lot doesn't have this Sunday law crisis he's trying to avoid and ignore and just pretend doesn't exist right now. He said, rather enjoy what I'm doing. He doesn't have that scenario. This place is going down in a moment of hours, but here's the problem. Lot's concession and comfort murdered his witnessing potential. And so when the day of judgment came, his ability to save people and pull them out of that environment was severely hampered. No one would listen to him at that stage. And some of us think that we can just do our own thing, and once we see an image erected on the plain of Dura, an image erected to the beast, then we're going to get serious, and we're actually going to want to leave, first of all, and two, that we're going to be able to bring people with us. The problem is the text of Scripture does not read that way. And so if we think that we can be comfortable in the midst of foolishness and surround our lives with foolishness, and then we're going to have a desire to leave when God sends angels to save our lives, we're kidding ourselves. And if we think that we're going to pull other people out with us, we're kidding ourselves. And this is why Jesus says, as it was in the days of Lot, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. There's lessons for us here. And Lot's wife tarries and turns back towards Sodom. And you know why? Because her husband tarried. 
We're literally told in the spirit of prophecy that she died because he tarried. He didn't lead. And so we have this strange dichotomy in the life of Lot. He's referred to as a righteous man, but his righteousness didn't save his family once he presumptuously moved his whole life into Sodom. We're told in another place that he was saved, his wife is destroyed, two daughters and two sons-in-law are destroyed, and he himself is saved, and then she says, so as by fire. In short, barely. Lot is barely saved. And what type of legacy does Lot leave to the world? He ends up impregnating his two daughters, who then end up giving birth to two perpetual thorns in the side of the nation of Israel, the Ammonites and the Moabites. That's the legacy the man leaves to the world. Now, how did that happen? Because he sent his daughters to the schools of Sodom. And when we subject our young people to nonsense all the time, you'll never believe this, it changes their worldviews. So here's the point. There is tremendous potential for the gospel with social media. Huge potential. It's massive, it's amazing, it's unlike anything we've ever had before on this planet, where you can reach that many people that easily. But we need to make sure that the decisions we're making with that knowledge in mind are going to be in harmony with the well-being of ourselves and our children. And if we can't handle it, or they can't handle it, now is not the time. You understand that? God needs digital missionaries, and He needs a lot of them. So I'm not telling you that everyone needs to stay away, but here's what I am telling you. Don't assume that just because you read your Bible for 10 minutes a day, and you pray for 10 minutes a day, that you can spend eight hours a day in Sodom and have it not change your mind. This man is referred to as a righteous man, but by living in that environment, it skewed his morals and it skewed his reasoning faculties and it makes you stupid. It makes you make decisions you wouldn't have made otherwise. Are you with me? So we need to find that appropriate balance and above all else, we need to find out what God wants us to do in this area. Does that make sense? And some of us will take the position, hey, God calls people to live in difficult areas. That's true. But that doesn't mean that God called you to live in a difficult area. Are you with me? Just because God calls people there does not mean that God called you there, especially if you have no self-control. So these are things we should be thinking about. Uh, Apple, for instance, is being pressed by their own board members, their own stakeholders, that you need to do something about digital device addiction. This is your fault, and hey, we're profiting from it, and we like the things that it does, but you should do something about keeping people from being so enslaved. So in iOS 11, when that releases this fall, one of the things they're going to be doing is actually releasing ways that you can limit the amount of time that you spend on certain apps. That's a welcome change. There's accountability you can have for these devices uh, and other things to be considering. So here's my point. How many people are familiar with something called an outpost center? Raise your hand if you know what an outpost center is. So, that's scary. An outpost center is a missionary community outside of a city that provides education, restoration, and preparation for work that's to be done in a city. Okay? So, a lot of our self-supporting institutions were originally intended to be places that were outside of metropolitan areas, not inside, outside, where you didn't get surrounded by this nonsense all the time, right? 
you did not, what they did do though, is they would set up centers of influence inside of the city to win the trust and the friendship of those people in the city with the goal of making intentional efforts to save their souls. So notice, you don't live in the city, but you have a center of influence to invest in people in the city. But when the day ends, when five o'clock happens, whenever your day ends, you get in your car and you leave that joint. And you live in a place that's conducive for spiritual growth, a place of simplicity, of health, good, healthy recreation, good community where you can grow spiritually. You understand the difference? This is what I believe our approach needs to be when it comes to social media. We take the outpost center mentality that our social media accounts are centers of influence, but we don't live there, right? So you may have an account, you're putting things out to be a blessing, but you also realize that this is not the place that I want to live, and I don't even want this place taking up a majority of my time each day, right? Something to keep in mind. So God has not called us to live in social media, but he has called us to influence people with social media and in social media. You understand the difference? That's the balance I think that we should be using. Pardon? Oh, praise the Lord. This is what we're told in uh, Messages to Young People. We should choose the society most favorable to our spiritual advancement and avail ourselves of every help within our reach. For Satan will oppose many hindrances to make our progress toward heaven as difficult as possible. Let's not fool ourselves. There is a devil. He is real. He doesn't want you to be saved. And he's doing whatever he can to make your progress towards heaven as difficult as possible. Okay? Here's what she says. So we should choose the society most favorable to our spiritual advancement. Okay? And, and seek out every help within our reach for good. She continues. We may be placed in trying positions. For many cannot have their surroundings what they would. But we should not voluntarily expose ourselves to influences that are unfavorable to the formation of Christian character. Okay, this is Messages to Young People, page 419. She continues, When duty calls us to this, because remember, God does call people there. You with me? That doesn't mean he called you there. He may, he may not. You should ask him. That would be a good idea. But if he does call you there, we should be doubly watchful and prayerful that through the grace of Christ we may stand uncorrupted. This is the good news. If God does call you there, through the grace of Christ, you can stand uncorrupted. Amen? You don't have to fall prey to the things that happen there. If that's where God calls you, God can sustain you if you cling to Him. Right? If in self-distrustfulness you cling to Jesus, you will thrive, you will see souls saved, you will do well in that environment by the grace of God. Okay? Now, some counsel on some things to avoid, and this is when I step on your toes. So you can either go grab your steel-toed boots or you can just take your shoes off and take it like a man. It's up to you. But these are some things that we really, really need to think about. And particularly as Seventh-day Adventists who are watchmen in the world. Okay? First, you know where I'm going? We are not to pander in politics. Are you hearing me today? This is not the call that God has on your life to be an apologist for the Republican Party. To be an apologist for the Independent Party to be an apologist for the Green Party or to be an apologist for the Democratic Party or whoever else it is that you fancy. This is not to rule your life. This is not to transform your worldview to be more in harmony with it than it is with the Word of God. Are you hearing me today? <coughs> Seventh-day Adventists, conservative and liberal, are drinking far too much Kool-Aid from politicians and from the media and shame on us. 
because it's crippling our witnessing potential, and we'd rather argue with people who don't think like I do politically and make fools of ourselves online. God has not called you to that. God is calling you out of that because it's Babylon. And we should not be pandering in politics, okay? So this is not the place where our lives should be knee-deep and involved. And here's the problem. The more time that we spend listening to political commentary from the right or to the left, it ends up developing within your heart and mind an us-versus-them mentality. And don't pretend that it doesn't. The same thing even happens with sports talk radio. And I found that when I separated myself from politics, and when I separated myself from even sports talk, which is very poisonous too, I was able to listen to people who thought differently than I did and not feel threatened and not feel like I need to insult them and not feel like I need to defend myself. I could just listen like a civil human being. We need to distance ourselves from these poisonous mediums that are changing the way that we view our own fellow human beings and how we communicate online should not look anything like that. Are you hearing me today? Yes. You can also pull back and look Look objectively at both of them, you'll see how corrupt they both are. Yes. And what happened for me was that I came to realize that the conservatives and the liberals are not right on everything. There's actually thoughtful, intelligent ideas coming from both camps. And when you separate from the noise and the vitriol, you're able to see people as human beings with things that they can bring to the table. And if they have things that you don't agree with, you just don't have to agree with them. But you don't have to hate them. You don't have to belittle them and make fools of yourselves in the kingdom of heaven. Because here's the problem. When you're communicating about politics, and I'm talking about in the church and out of the church, right? If you're just blasting on women's ordination or blasting on the nature of Christ or the Trinity or whatever else your hobby horse is, and to be honest with you, most of the reasons why we're running to talk about these things is not to defend theology, it's to find an identity. Because we got brokenness that we don't want to deal with. I would encourage us, if we find ourselves arguing with people on the internet, to stop arguing with people on the internet and to search your own heart instead of everybody else's. We're told in the faith I live by 111, that what is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, then they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I've heard some rumors that the Michigan Conference is getting excited about the message of Christ our righteousness. That's good news. That's great. Here's the thing, guys. In the context of that precious message, we're told that when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Notice it does not say when you see everybody else's nothingness you're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Laodicean message is that you're not who you think you are at every aspect of your being, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. You're a mess. You're not who you think you are, and you desperately need Jesus. That's the Laodicean message. we got to come to terms with that. And if we're seeking our identity by running everybody else down, because all of them got problems, Everybody else got problems, but not me. We're missing a blessing, and we're deceived. We've deluded ourselves. 
And not only have we deluded ourselves, but we're defrauding and denigrating the cause of Christ. Because my Facebook profile says I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but my posts say I'm a racist. My posts say that I'm a religious bigot. My posts say that I'm this, that, or the other thing. I'm towing the company line for the Republicans. I'm towing the company line for Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever else. And here's why it gets difficult. There are situations happening in our world right now that the Bible has something to say about on what our moral call is. But the news media that we love so much has a different position than the Bible does. And then we argue with people on social media for having a position that's different than what my news media outlet says that I like so much, not even realizing that the Bible actually advocates for the very thing I'm arguing against. And I can't think objectively because I'm drinking the Kool-Aid from these people or from these people, the right or the left. I drank the red Kool-Aid for a while and then I drank the blue and now I just have a stomach ache and I'm done with all of them. My encouragement to you is to abstain, to back away from the noise and the nonsense and to view your fellow human beings as just that, fellow human beings who need Jesus. Are you with me? Stay away from that stuff online. There are publications on the internet right now run by Seventh-day Adventists on the conservative side of the aisle and the liberal side of the aisle. And they have the right to free press. They have the right to communicate their opinions. And notice, I'm not even telling you where I stand. It's none of your business. And to be honest with you, my opinion doesn't really matter. It's actually not all that great. Make your own opinion. But here's my point. On both sides of the aisle, there are people who are communicating in a fashion they, they have the right to communicate their theological views. They have the right to free press. And that's fine as long as it's done in Christian courtesy. But the comment sections on these websites are sinful. Shame on us and shame on the people who run these websites who don't stop that nonsense. Are you hearing me today? That's not the way that Seventh-day Adventists should be communicating. Because when you start searching about what Seventh-day Adventists believe and you end up on one of these websites and you see how Seventh-day Adventists are communicating with fellow Seventh-day Adventists, it's ugly. It's sinful, and we should repent. Shame on us. And yet we have these catchy names. My name is Bob Truth, 1844, and I'm so passionate about X topic. Like, I'm sorry, but I just, Jesus doesn't operate that way. That does not look like Jesus. It's not okay. We cannot communicate like that. This is the picture of our church we're giving to the world, and they think, you know, y'all can keep it. I'm not interested. If you can't even behave like adults and civil Christians, if you can't act like Jesus when talking about Jesus with followers of Jesus, you need Jesus, right? So just some things to be thinking about. Listen to what Ellen White says. This is, and you need to write this reference down, and if you have a social media account, please post this today. 1888 Materials 534.3. Listen to this. Nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by who? Our brethren. Notice, she's not talking about Babylonians. She's talking about our people. And you know why? Because in her day, the signs of the times and the Review and Herald were lobbing theological bombs back and forth at each other because they were run by different editors. We think this about the Long Galatians. Oh, yeah? Well, we think that about the Long Galatians, and they're quarreling one with another 
in our own publications, which are being distributed to non-Adventists, not just Adventists. And we look like fools. And it drove her mad. And listen to what she says. Nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by our own people. We are on dangerous ground when we cannot meet together like Christians and courteously examine controverted points. We're on dangerous ground if we can't behave like adults when talking about controverted points, theologically. She continues, I feel like fleeing the place. Ella White, I feel like running away from this place. Lest I receive the mold of those who cannot candidly investigate the doctrines of the Bible. You ever see Adventists communicating with one another online? You just want to throw your laptop in the bathtub? That's how she felt. And listen to what she says next. Those who cannot impartially examine the evidences of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. You shouldn't be a pastor. You shouldn't be a conference administrator. You should not be a Sabbath school teacher or a leader if you cannot impartially examine the evidences of a position that differs from yours. If you're so insecure because someone believes something different than you, you shouldn't be a pastor. You shouldn't be a Sabbath school teacher. You shouldn't be a conference administrator. And you certainly should not be communicating publicly on behalf of God. If you can't act like a Christian with people who don't see things as you see them. She says, uh, so anyway, that's what Ellen White says. That's 1888 materials, 534.3. Save that one. Post liberally, please. This is another one when it comes to the topic of bullying, because a lot of what's happening from people in these environments is we're bullying people. That's what it is. It's bullying. Listen to what happened to her. I don't know if you're aware of this. Ellen White was bullied. Right? That's how she got hit in the face with a rock. She was being bullied by somebody, and it ruined her life. She says, as I became able to join and play with my young friends, I was forced to learn the bitter lesson that our personal appearances often make a difference in the treatment that we receive from our companions. Body shaming in the 1800s. Her face did not look the same for the rest of her life. Her own father did not recognize her when he came home because he had been gone traveling. Life sketches, 18.4. She continues, though. It was the hardest struggle of my young life to yield to my feebleness and decide that I must leave my studies and give up the hope of gaining an education. She maxed out with a third grade education. She couldn't go any further because of her feebleness physically because she was bullied by someone. That person repented and felt terrible later, but the problem is it didn't change her physical makeup. She still looked the same, still had the same infirmities. Bullying is not acceptable. Theological bullying, physical bullying, emotional and psychological bullying, right? Exercising our authority over our homes and being bullying is not okay, ever. I want to close with a story here of a young girl. Her name is Amanda Todd. Her name was Amanda Todd. So this girl was chatting with people online and doing web chats, like FaceTime chats, basically web camera chats, with people that she did not know as like a 14-year-old, which never should happen, but she was doing it. And this person in that conversation with her discourses, says, I want you to show me your upper regions to the webcam. And they keep pressuring her and pressuring her and pressuring her, and she does it. 
what she doesn't know is that this person somehow recorded that image. I don't know how they did it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know the details. Somehow this person recorded that image. And about a year later, they message her again and say, hey, I want you to give me another show. And she says, no. And then they, tell, they send her the picture and say, I have this. And then they list to her, this is where you go to school. These are your parents' names. This is your physical address. These are the names of your closest friends. And they blackmail her and say, look, I know all this information. I'm sending it to them and all the people in your school. If you don't... She said, no, I'm not going to do that. Christmas break, police show up to her house at 3 in the morning. You know why? That picture has been circulated through five schools in her area. And this is what she says. She ends up posting a video on YouTube of her using note cards, telling her story. She can't even say it. And so she uses these note cards to tell her story one after another after another. And she says, I can never get that photo back. It's out there forever. And it's true. There are young people in our society today and in our church today who in a moment of thoughtlessness are sending images of themselves to someone else of the opposite gender because they're being agged on to do it. And they're told, I'll never share with anyone. I'm not going to talk to anyone about it. And that's never true. It's never true. Not ever. And you can never get it back. And people are ending their lives over stuff like this. She spiraled into depression. She gets mocked and made fun of by people in her school. She ends up drinking alcohol and going to drugs and other things just to numb the pain that she's feeling from what she's going through in her life. But it gets worse. Someone that she knows who has a girlfriend says, my girlfriend's out of town. Let's meet up. I think you know where this is going to go. When the girlfriend gets back, she finds out about it. And then this girl gets a text message saying, get out of your school and get out of your school right now. Why? Because a group of like 10 kids surround her and mock and taunt her, call her stupid and all kinds of names. And finally they say, what are you waiting on? Just hit her. And so the girlfriend hits her, lays her out, and everyone's mocking and laughing at her. And it's outside, and she eventually just rolls over into a ditch and just lays there and cries. She's dealing with substance abuse now and addiction because of what's happened. She's been blackmailed, she's been bullied, and she's now been beat up by fellow peers. And what ends up happening is she goes home and she drinks bleach. And she survives. And this is what people on social media, peers, have to say. She should try different bleach, and I hope this time she isn't so stupid. And they start posting pictures of ditches and pictures of bottles of bleach. And they're harassing and haranguing this poor girl. And what eventually happens is, in this video, and this video is a cry to help, she closes the video by saying, I have nobody. And I need someone. And she has no idea that there's an answer for her in Christ. And months after she makes this video, she ends her own life. Amanda Todd is gone. She's gone. Because she was bullied by fellow human beings and peers through social media. 
what she didn't know is that she wasn't alone. And she had someone. And his name is Jesus. And no one told her. To the best understanding we have, no one told her. So I want to close with this thought. Jesus' own experience. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, it says there's nothing about the appearance of Jesus that would draw us to him. And the White gives him counsel that he was a lovely, simple man, but his life experience and everything that he went through, there was nothing that would draw us to him. It was a totally unattractive life. She didn't know that she had a Savior who understood. We're also told in Isaiah 53 and verse 3 that Jesus was rejected. She didn't know. We're told in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, or 52 and verse 3, I think it's actually 53, that Jesus was tempted to feel alone in his grief and that there was no one there for him. She didn't know. He was physically wounded in Isaiah 53 and verse 5. He was beaten beyond the point of recognition. Jesus went through this to be able to relate to Amanda, but no one told her. And he was quiet about the abuse. As a lamb led before the shearers is silent, just like her. She didn't speak up about it. She just took abuse. Jesus understood. Sold in Psalm 22 that he was ridiculed and mocked, just like her. He was stripped and cried out to God for help, we're told in Psalm 18, 22, 18 to 21. Jesus was not sexually violated, but he went through something very similar in nature to be able to relate to Amanda. She didn't know. And he was tempted to harm himself in Matthew chapter 4. Satan tells him, throw yourself off the temple. Jesus was tempted to harm himself. She attempted suicide multiple times. Jesus was tempted to harm himself, but didn't. This girl did not know that she had a suffering Messiah who was acquainted with her grief, who could offer her healing that no one else could. She didn't know. And she died without hope and without Jesus. He was betrayed by so many trusted in Matthew chapter 26 by Judas. He was tempted to numb his own pain by drinking wine. This is where every one of our addictions comes into play. The wine vinegar mix on the cross was specifically to numb the pain so they could last longer. Every one of us have addictions and things we're going through in life. Jesus was tempted at that same root level to offer you freedom, to offer you healing, and to set her free. She ran to drugs and alcohol and a physical relationship to numb her pain. Jesus already escaped that pain just for her. She didn't know. And Jesus himself was publicly exposed and shamed upon the cross. Everyone in town sees Jesus exposed. He could relate to her in so many ways. And she didn't know. And she's gone. But here's the point. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, thank you. Matthew 27. And, but are you understanding today that there's a Savior who understands this girl's experience to the depths of her experience and longs to set her free? She didn't know. And in turn, she's gone. How many Amanda Todd's are in your experience? How many Amanda Todd's do you cross shoulders with every single day who do not know what you know about a Savior who understands, who suffered, and what are you communicating publicly to let them know? That's the question.
So if you've been bullied, abused, know that Jesus went through this just to be able to comfort you in ways that nobody else could, just for you. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2, if you turn with me there, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 17, therefore in all things Jesus had to be made like his brethren. He had to suffer like us. Why? That he may be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, Jesus is able to aid those who are tempted. This is why Jesus had to suffer in all points as you, not just physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. He was bullied. He was rejected. He was depressed. He was abandoned, felt suffered, or felt like he was forsaken and he had to suffer alone. Jesus had to go through these things so that when you go through them, you can know that there's a Savior who understands, who is safe. And this is why it says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, that seeing then that we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is not the time to be letting go of Jesus. You have a Savior who understands. Then it says that, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Why? so that we could therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You've been abused, rejected, neglected, shamed, violated. Jesus understands and you can come boldly today. She didn't know that. But there's a man of Todd in your life who need to. So if you've been bullied or seen people bullied, do something about it. We will sit by and watch people be violated. And we won't do anything. But yet we'll complain about theological issues online. We'll complain about other stuff. What about the gospel in action? When you see stuff like this, do something. We're more willing to share our disgust over political and religious things than we are to stand for the oppressed and shame on us. Shame on us. We should do something about that. Tweet others as you wish to be tweeted. I didn't take that. I took it. I didn't write that. The golden rule in Twitter. So is social media sin? It depends. Are you using it or is it using you? Or are you using it to advance your agenda instead of God's? That's the question. That's the real issue at hand. Are there any questions? Yeah, back one screen, there was a sign. Back one What does that mean? Uh, it's just one of the things they have. There's filters they have on Facebook. I don't know. It's one of those filters they have on Facebook. Um, and so you can use it. I think it's just a peace sign and hang loose or whatever, but, um, uh-huh. Are there any, well, first of all, has this made sense? Okay. Do you feel like you have some practical tools you know what to do with here? The older generation, and particularly the more the conservative we are, are more prone to just dismiss anything that we think looks bad. 
And the problem with that is, if that's the mentality that the Apostle Paul and Jane Andrews took, we would never have been a global movement as Christians or as a Seventh-day Adventist church. You can't just run from everything you don't like. You can't just run from all the things that you think are bad. Who's going to tell these people about Jesus? What that is, is us walking along the other side instead of being a good Samaritan. The question is, what is God calling you to do? Because even if God isn't calling you to be there, you can pray. And so if all we're doing is saying, that's got bad stuff, there's bad people there, oh no, no, don't go there because that's got bad people, or there's bad people here, bad people, are you praying for these bad people? If you're at least not willing to get their blood on you as you pick them up and put them on your mule and put them in the inn, will you at least pray for them? That's the least we can do, yeah? But please make sure that before we just render judgments upon situations, ask the question, what does God think about this environment? What does God think about the potential for this? And we've seen the potential is huge, guys, for the gospel. But is that what God is calling you to do? Maybe not. It's probably people that are going to be in a younger demographic that understand the language and how to use it, but who need to be principled. Will you pray for them? Will you support them as they go in there? That's the question. Does that make sense? So those are things to be thinking about. Now, the how of using social media, we're going to cover through the rest of our time together. Okay? This is just an introductory message. There's still more to go. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of the how after this, just so you know. Tomorrow, we're actually going to have Jamie Jean Schneider from the North American Division, who's one of the best assets we have in the Seventh-day Adventist Church on this topic. If you are working with a church or a ministry or an organization, and you're looking to know how to increase your footprint on social media, how to do targeted ads, how to get more views and so forth, she's going to be doing a seminar via Zoom with us tomorrow at the same time, 9.30 in the same room, okay? I'll be here too, but she'll be doing the main part of it, and then I'll pick up the rest of the week, okay? You had a question. Well, my basic question was, uh, four more lectures are coming. The first one was exceptionally good. I'm oh, praise so the happy Lord. I gave. Wow, praise the Lord. But the next four will be of the same quality. I sure hope so. <laughs> praise the Lord. Of course, politically correct. Yes. <laughs> praise the Lord, yes. Depends a lot if they're really having a relationship with Jesus or not, or it's artificial. Uh, I've dealt with some of this already. My idea was I came to church in 1978, and then the first year or two with the 18th message. I took a very strong stand in that, and I everybody had to believe it like I did. Mm. Because nobody seemed to be believing it. I'm a strong moral person, so. Yeah. Bullying them or attacking them, hoping they'll respond back to something instead of, oh, we're already doing that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the church, it was obvious to me that was struggling. Yeah. Identified with Jesus. Yeah. So then the Lord tapped me on the shoulder and said, let me try to bit more about yourself. Yeah. Then I'm experiencing it. Yeah. Now I can go on all the different groups. I go on the sinners, I'm a lizard band. Yeah. So I see people on the door. Yeah. You can't run away from it. That's Pharisee. Right. That's not Christianity. It's true. You know what the irony is? Some of the worst messengers on behalf of the 1888 message have been people who believed or thought they believed the 1888 message. And I'm head over heels in love with it, by the way. I think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think it's the true gospel. But here's the problem. One of the core components of the 1888 message is liberty of conscience. 
A.T. Jones was preaching regularly, not just the gospel of Christ our righteousness, he was preaching on liberty of conscience. Dude debated Senator Blair in Congress in December of 1888. And so if we think that we need to strong arm our theological views, particularly as people who claim to believe the gospel goodness, shame on us, right? And, and the, the very message that we think needs to change everybody else hasn't changed us. Um, and that's unfortunate. And that's actually led to a lot of people being opposed to the 1888 message because they think that everyone who believes it looks like that. They come to my home church and they light the curtains on fire. I want nothing to do with those people, not knowing that that's not the message nor the spirit of the message and it causes problems. That's a great case in point. Um, all right, well, let's pray and we'll close. Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege uh, to be able to get an introductory look into social media, its relevance, and uh, some questions we need to be asking about ourselves and how we communicate. I just pray, oh God, that as we continue our time through the course this week, that you would give us the information we need to thrive and to succeed and to be able to tell clearly whether this is where you're leading me or not. It may not be, and that's okay. Uh, it's not for everyone. But if it is for me, how? And so we just ask for wisdom and discernment in that. And we ask these things now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.